You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, send your spirit even now that uh, we might hear and receive the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're taking a break for one week um, from First Peter, which we've been reading through, to, to look at Acts 2 because it's uh, the day of Pentecost and reading an appropriate uh, reading for that occasion. But some of um, the, there's some connection between the, the passage that we have today with First Peter. I mentioned that last week if you were here that some of the regions that Peter makes mention of in his first epistle are, are listed here at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. You might remember that First Peter chapter 1 begins where he's addressing the dispersion, uh, the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then in Acts 2, uh, when the crowds there at the temple are responding to what's happening at Pentecost, when the 120 receive the, ho the Holy Spirit, they and begin to speak in tongues as of fire, those folks in the crowd say, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Did you notice some of the overlap of some of the places mentioned? Not one to one, but at least three of the places that are mentioned in 1 Peter, also mentioned by the crowds of folks who are present there at the day of Pentecost. Uh, so the congregations in Peter's epistle were likely planted by some of those first converts from uh, Peter's sermon, or at least were disciples of those folks. And uh, actually, this is the. Uh, <clears throat> Um, this observation is, gets at the heart of what I want to say about what Acts chapter 2 actually demonstrates. Many people are curious about Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost because of all the supernatural phenomena um, and what we think about it from a contemporary point of view. You know, what are the divided tongues as of fire? How do these people miraculously speak in uh, foreign languages that were intelligible to the people? So it wasn't, um, they were actually able to speak the foreign language in a way that the folks were, they were understanding it um, miraculously in a way that they were, they were never able to speak those languages before. And then the question of does the Holy Spirit still empower people to work in this way, et cetera. These are all the kinds of questions that naturally come up from Acts chapter 2. But the main point of this passage is this. After Christ's ascension, that is his raising bodily up into heaven, which was witnessed by the same disciples who were gathered there in the upper room, after his ascension, God is about to build his worldwide church. As Jesus said in chapter 1, uh, his disciples will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. They will uh, bear witness in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to all four corners of the world. And also he promises not to leave them to do this by their own strength. Instead, they will have the power to do this by the Holy Spirit. 
And our passage today is the initial fulfillment of these very promises. And here's the thing, God doesn't tarry. He, he's, in, in this case, a little bit impatient. He's not going to wait for the initial 120 to sort of do this in a small scale at their own pace. But God takes advantage of the situation with all these folks present from all these various nations gathered in Jerusalem in all cardinal directions outside of Jerusalem, you know, north, south, east, and west, all over, um, various nations. God takes advantage of their presence there for the day of Pentecost to begin to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So he sends the Holy Spirit to inspire that 120 who are there and to bring about an additional, immediately, an additional 3,000 missionaries to these various nations. Let's take a look at how the passage is structured because it will help us understand uh, what's going on here. You can follow along either in your Bible or look at it there in your bulletin. Basically, verses 1 through 13 are a sort of continuation of that narrative in chapter 1. Um, so up to this point, the gospel is guarded. The, uh, the message of Jesus Christ risen from the dead is guarded with those 120 or at least maybe up to 500, because Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that there are 500 who witnessed Christ's resurrection. So between 120 and 500 people uh, have the gospel, but 120 of them are, are um, holed up there in the upper room. And uh, then in verses 1 through 3, they're given the power of uh, the, they're given power by the Holy Spirit. Uh, power for what? power to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to be his witnesses. And then beginning at uh, verse 14, Peter begins uh, this church's public proclamation. Before it was guarded, remember, with those 120 or up to 500, but then all of a sudden at verse 14, it's unleashed by the power of the Holy Spirit through Peter to all the worlds there he, where he bears the witness to the large crowd gathered at the temple. And he does this uh, through a sermon. And the content of his sermon is interesting. There's basically two, two things here in his sermon. The first is that the beginning of his sermon is an explanation of what's actually happening right there. Uh, he's responding to the crowd that's mocking, saying, these guys must be drunk, right? They're mocking what's happening there. And uh, Peter uh, responds by saying, they're not drunk. It's too early in the morning. I don't know about you, but I've seen some people get drunk in the morning. I don't know what he's talking about. But anyway, he's saying, um, he's saying, actually, what's happening here is scripture from Joel, the prophet Joel, is being fulfilled. The time has come when the sort of prophetic proclamation the message of God is going to be democratized. It's uh, put in the hands of all who believe, both men and women, everyone, you know, lay and ordained, not just the clergy, not just the, the religious elite, but all believers. And this is an important uh, point that he's making, that all who believe are preachers. All who trust in Jesus Christ are proclaimers, are prophetic who have the word to share with the rest of the world. It's not just guarded with folks like me, but also is in your hands too, is what he's saying here. So that's the first thing with his citation of Joel. The second thing in his sermon is this, is that he cites a psalm to highlight the, the proper content of the proclamation. 
Uh, first, he's talking about the gift of proclamation put in the hands of all, men and women, um, lay and ordained. And then the proper content of that proclamation is this, namely that Jesus Christ the, is the long-expected Messiah, the Lord. And that the people right there in the crowds were culpable for killing him. He, he even he sort of ends the sermon by saying, and you killed him, you know, mic drop. That's the, the final note. And uh, after Peter ends on this note, we have the crowd's response. The crowd's response to that sermon, of Peter's witness. Interestingly, rather than riding against him uh, and accusing him of blasphemy, at least the, the, it seems to be the majority of the crowd ask a bewildered question. At this point, they must be inspired by the Holy Spirit to ask this question, well, what should we do? we're convicted that we actually killed the Messiah. What should we do? They're cut to the heart, we're told, by Peter's message, and they see its truth. Thankfully, Peter's not like the sort of the street preachers that are all accusation and no hope. You know, he doesn't leave them with all accusation and then just leave. He, he offers hope to this question. Um, he says to repent to change your mind, change your heart, to change your life and your ways is what that means. And coupled with that, to be baptized, to symbolize the repentance. And with this will come forgiveness of sins. And not only that, they'll too receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit to guide them in life, to likewise proclaim that same message to anyone who has ears to hear. And so, as I said before, the church is now suddenly about six times larger in one day. And these converts will be the missionary witnesses to the ends of the earth. So fast forward 2,000 years later, after all of that, what can this story mean for the church today? Current estimates are that Christianity is the world's largest religion. 2,000 years later, there are, uh, are about 2 billion of the world's 6 to 7 billion people who, who identify as Christian, as followers of Jesus Christ. And this all started with that 120, with Peter preaching that sermon, and the 3,000 added that day at Pentecost. And we see the effects of it in Peter's epistle and other epistles when um, the various authors are writing to these churches in that dispersion. And it's led to you being in church today in Birmingham, Alabama, which nobody even knew about 2,000 years ago. What would lead uh, this same group of 120 people who just several weeks prior to this event, after the crucifixion, hold themselves up in the, the same upper room but with fear of the religious authorities? to later be the, these leaders at Pentecost. It had to have been their direct encounter with the risen Christ. I mean, these guys, remember, Peter himself, just weeks prior, denied Christ. What would empower him to be able to preach such a sermon? First of all, it had to have been his encounter with the risen Christ. And it had to have been their reception of the Spirit to empower these backwood Galileans led by a professional 
uh, fishermen to speak the message of Jesus Christ with such boldness to such a large crowd at the temple there in Jerusalem. And now we have a worldwide movement with about a third of the world's population adhering to this message and attesting to what uh, the Spirit inducted there at Pentecost. The gospel and its witnesses and uh, the work of the Spirit are not without its resistance and its resistors. Then, as now, we see that when the gospel is proclaimed rightly and when the Spirit's at work, it's fought. People fight against it all the time. The book of Acts has a, a cycle of the same thing happening over and over again in all the stories. If you pay attention, that most of the stories have this sort of fourfold kind of structure. First of all, there's spirit-bracked proclamation of that message. Some who hear the message accept it, both Jew or Gentile, either way. And then also, many, often sometimes the majority, resist it, both Jew and Gentile. And the witnesses for this message suffer. Here, in this case, it's just mocking. But we'll see in uh, just a few chapters that they suffer beating, imprisonment, and some even die for proclaiming this message. But here's the, the fifth thing that happens, though. I said there were four things that happen in each of those cycles. The fifth thing that happens in each cycle in the book of Acts, when, the, when each story is told, is that God intervenes to protect the gospel even when it doesn't look like it, even when uh, it, the, the gospel looks to be uh, failing, when the church appears to be suffering to an extent that you might think there is no hope. I mean, just think of it in chapter 7, we'll see where Stephen is the first, murder, uh, first martyr murdered for, uh, for proclaiming this message. Even when it was a seeming uh, total defeat, like the stoning of Stephen... There was a man in the crowd named Saul who would later be called Paul the Apostle. Paul who would go on to grow the church perhaps even more than any other, at least in his generation. And we can assume that Saul, who would become Paul, first heard the gospel when Stephen proclaimed it there at his stoning. Even though Saul was culpable for, culpable for Stephen's death, the Spirit was beginning to cut his heart even then that he might later receive that message. So what is the uh, word of Pentecost for us as a church and members of it? This passage, properly understood, helps us to see clearly the main work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes primarily to empower all of Jesus Christ's disciples to proclaim the good news of Christ, crucified and risen. And by doing so, new believers might come from all nations, all nations, all languages, all races, all nationality. Jesus Christ, and you might not think of it this way, but Jesus Christ, whom you killed, and crucified because we were all culpable even though we weren't yet alive Jesus Christ whom you killed has risen from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins and so I say to you repent be baptized receive the forgiveness 
and receive the gift of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives you power to be witnesses to the end of the earth, just as, it, uh, just as he did with those original 3,000 unlikely converts back on the day of Pentecost. There are still, according to the statistics that I cited to you, there are still about 4 billion, maybe more, people in this world who do not yet trust in Jesus Christ. The majority. We may be the largest religion, but the majority of the world does not trust in the message of Jesus Christ, and many, as a matter of fact, are violently resistant to it. And yes, the ends of the earth include Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and, and the parts of Libya. But it also includes Birmingham, Alabama, or wherever you happen to be from. Whether it's over the mountain, uh, or Shelby County, or north of here in Gardendale, or Woodlawn, or wherever it is that you live, anywhere else around the world, and even places where the gospel is violently resisted. May the Spirit empower all of us, all of us, to bear witness to the hope that we have in the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.